Welcome to Originality, the podcast where we talk about and explore the roots of creativity and creative expression. I am one of your hosts, Aline Sims, and as always, I am joined by the lovely Kay Tempest Bradford. Woohoo! Woohoo! To set up the premise of the show a little bit, if you haven't listened to us before, um, either Tempest or I, we go out and we talk to a friend of ours or a community member about an aspect of creation and creativity. Um, we record that and then we come back and uh, Tempest and I will talk about it in the podcast. So when you hear Nisi talk today, um, sorry, spoiler, um, that will be something that she and Tempest recorded a week or two ago. Um, and... Yeah, I think that's it. So Tempest, do you want to tell us about our guest for the day? I do. All right. So today's guest is Nisi Shaw, who is the author of Everfair, a steampunk novel set in the Belgian Congo, which is, by and by, nominated for a Nebula Award this year. Woohoo. She's also the author of many short stories, some of which were collected in the Tiptree award-winning collection Filter House. And she's also co-author of Writing the Other, a Practical Approach, a book uh, she did with Cynthia Ward. She has edited many anthologies and magazines, from Stories for Chip, Strange Matings, to the magazine Cascadia Subduction Zone, and she is the editor of the upcoming People of Color Destroy Fantastic Stories of the Imagination. Nisi is a busy woman. Okay. I know what we're talking about today isn't the the people of color destroying things, but I'm on board. I'm excited to read that when it comes out. Right. Destroy it all. Destroy it. <laughs> I am super excited. Uh, you know, obviously I've listened to what you and Nisi talked about. I'm really excited about it, but I am super excited to read Everfair, her Nebula Award uh, nominated novel. It's been on my reading list and now it's like knocked up to the top because of this conversation that you two had. So I'm super excited to dive into that. Yeah. And one of the most interesting things I think about Everfair is the fact that it, it was a novel. It's her first published novel, but it's not the first novel that she's written. It emerged out of a dare that she took on because she was on a panel at the World Fantasy Convention where she was nominated for an award there as well. And Previous to that, she had not really been a fan of steampunk. So I'll let Nisi tell that story. It was a dare that I gave myself. I was up for actually two World Fantasy Awards. So yeah, I kind of had to go to the World Fantasy Convention. I approached them and said, do you want me on the programming? And they said, well, yes, actually we do. And here is the program that has space for you. And it was a panel on steampunk, which forced me to confront the fact that I disliked steampunk enormously. And then I realized it was because um, all of the steampunk that I could find easily was based on this idea that imperialism was great and British people should rule the world and, you know, colonialism was the best thing ever. So I set about trying desperately. I think I came up with two whole stories that were not colonialist, not imperialist. And then I went on the panel and I told people that and I was very oppositional. And 
somehow I wound up pledging that I would write a steampunk story set in the Belgian Congo because that would make it so that everything that I objected to about steampunk was uh, fixed. And then Michael Swanwick looked at me and rolled his eyes and, you know, basically said he wouldn't read it because the Belgian Congo is the site of horrible depravity. Millions of people died and there was all this maiming and it was terrible. So he said he wouldn't read that. And I said, I will make you beg to read it. He did read it and enjoy it very much. So the thing that I absolutely love about that story, other than the fact that she, she told Michael Swanwick what to do <laughs> and then he did it. Um, I'm, I'm pro that. That's my motto for 2017. Is that it came out of her not actually liking steampunk, but then deciding to write the steampunk that she wanted to see and to write a steampunk novel that addressed some of the issues that she saw in the genre. And um, and we'll play a bit for you later where she talks about how when she started doing research, she did find some other people, lots of other people, who were also talking about those kind of things and addressing them. But I guess what what really keyed into me when I, whenever I listened to her tell this story is how much that is how fan fiction sometimes works, where you have somebody who like, they love a TV show, they're watching it, whatever, but there's something going on in the TV show that doesn't quite sit right with them. It's either that character is not sleeping with that other character that you think they should be sleeping with. Right. Um, you know, these people aren't doing the things they should be doing. The show isn't addressing the stuff you want to address. And none of the characters are working in a coffee shop on the campus of your your high school, and that's what you really want them to be doing. Whatever it is. Um, but, you know, sometimes, I mean, a lot of times fan fiction is just play, but sometimes fan fiction is really there, like, to address the things that people are seeing wrong with or, or not seeing enough of in the fiction that they love. And so even though, you know, Everfair is not in any way fan fiction, just that impetus, that is what always sort of intrigues me about that germ for the story. Yeah, I I, I think that's awesome. Just that, um, also that recognition, like I kind of dared myself to do this. Um, and he, she was egged on, right? <laughs> By someone saying, well, I wouldn't read that. But yeah, I, I loved that, that that's how she did it. And in fact, that's kind of uh, the way I've done a lot of the projects that I've taken on, like Less Than or Equal in this show is I haven't seen, I, I didn't see a lot of po- podcasts that focused on marginalized people. I didn't see a lot of um, podcasts that talk about creativity and kind of pick pick things apart like we're doing. Um, and so it was like, yeah, let's start these things. Why, why aren't we doing this? Um, I wanted to ask you, um, you, uh, teacher of writing the other, uh, would you explain to people if they're not sure about what imperialism is? Because Nisi talked about that's part of what she disliked about steampunk. Would you help people understand what that means? Sure. Imperialism, uh, is a system in which, you know, some country or, or some imperial force, say, you know, we'll take, you know, the British empire, for example, you know, the, the queen or the king of, the United Kingdom is like, I want to go over there and I want to own that country and I want to rule over those people. They are not in any way physically connected to me, culturally connected to me, but I want their resources. And so I'm going to go down there and I'm going, well, not me, but I will send <laughs> my my soldiers down there to take it by force. And then I will declare myself the ruler over them. And so one great example is, and 
please forgive me if I get this history wrong because I don't know the whole history. I don't know which monarch of Britain it was that uh, went down to India and and was like, we're taking India. But certainly Queen Victoria was like, I am the Empress of India. Like that was literally one of her titles. And every time I hear that, I just shake my head because I just feel like, no, no, you weren't. Um, So that's what imperialism is. But imperialism does not even have to necessarily involve a monarch, necessarily involve, you know, a giant empire coming in, even though like that's where the word imperialism comes from, the empire. Um, it it can also sort of trickle down into into other systems of oppression. Anytime you have a group of people from a culture, from a country that have imposed their culture, their values, their people, um, their priorities on another group, that's when imperialism is at work. And there are levels to it. Again, not not. it's not all the time going to be about the British Empire doing its thing. We don't consider America an empire, mm-hmm. I would say, in general, but we, we do do imperialist things, and we certainly, you know, impose our culture and our cultural values on people of different cultures in different countries that are not physically connected to ours. So that's sort of the basics of what imperialism is. And that's a lot of why when Nisi was talking about steampunk is infused with imperialism, steampunk in general glorifies a lot of things about the Victorian era, which includes British imperialism. Um, Like I said, Queen Victoria calling herself the Empress of India, British folks running around India, taking away... I mean, isn't there some famous... There's some there's some jewel, I think it's called the Kalinor, that, that the British took from India and it was like very important to the people. And and British just took it. They're like, it's ours now and it belongs to us and they put it in their crown jewels and it's yep. like and, and and now they're like, But it's ours. Why are you why are you making faces at it? And Steampunk just just tends to like sit on that and be like, Yeah, that was all great and and doesn't often interrogate those sources. Instead it just sort of revels in them. That is also what I find annoying about steampunk. And I didn't know. So beyond seeing steampunk cosplayers at conventions, steampunk is never something that really struck a chord with me. I mean, I've read a couple books like um, maybe The Goblin Emperor would be one that that is kind of steampunkish and fantastical. Um, But but yeah, when I heard Nisi say that, it was like a light bulb. And I was like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense to me why... It, it, it's not <laughs> it's not representative and inclusive and uh i mean a lot of literature isn't but it seems particularly uh off- offensive um egregious egregious in steampunk i guess yeah it can be but the thing that's nice is that because steampunk is is literally like invented past it's retrofuturism it's an invented past, so anybody can do anything with it. There are no rules. Like there, there might be people who would say, "Oh, well, you can't. That's not steampunk because it doesn't take place during the blah blah blah." Hush, you, because <laughs> none of it took place anywhere because it's fantasy because it's literally made up. And even though there's sort of a a consensus reality around steampunk that it's happening between this year and this year, um, I I bust that all up. 
we'll talk about that later. But, you know, people are like, oh, it, it you know, it's, the germ of it is here and this year and it goes forward from there. And so that's generally where people are setting their stuff. But there's nothing that says that steampunk has to be set anywhere in the British Empire. There's nothing that says that steampunk even has to acknowledge that there would be a British Empire. You can just say that there isn't a British Empire if you want to. But you can have your story take place in China or or India or somewhere on the continent of Africa. You know, there are all these things. So because it's one of those things where there's a lot of people who have bought into those problematic aspects of steampunk and a lot of people who are pushing back against it. And and nobody can tell those people who are pushing back against it that they're wrong because it's all made up stuff. Yeah. It reminds me of the, and this is tangentially related, but like it reminds me of the arguments I hear about video games or um, fantasy where people are like, well, there can't be people of color in here because it's not historically accurate. And, you know, the thing that I see going around is like, you have dragons in your story. You can have people of color. Like people of color actually yeah. exist. Dragons do not. And I kind of feel like that's the same argument uh, with steampunk, uh, based on my limited knowledge, obviously, but yeah, <sighs> people. Yeah, and and this is a this is a thing that we talk about in wider fantasy a lot. But um, what I found interesting because I asked Nisi once she had you know taken the stare and decided to write the story, which turned into a novel. What kind of research she did then on steampunk that didn't fit into the the oppressive and imperialist molds that she was, that she had found in just the early stages of her research on steampunk? Well, of course, um, by the time that, that Everfair was published, I was acquainted with sites such as Silver Goggles, which is run by Jamie Goh, and I met Margaret Killjoy, who had put together a magazine celebrating post-colonial steampunk. So yeah, I got educated. A lot of it was written by people of color or marginalized people. There were actually a couple of anthologies called Steam Powered, which was all lesbian steampunk. The sources were pretty clearly part of the difference. Um, if someone has experienced colonialism firsthand, then they're going to try and subvert it in their art. Yeah, I really, really love what she said at the end there about if you experience colonialism firsthand, you're going to subvert it. Because I, I have found that to be very true. Like the, the people who are doing a lot of work, uh, some of whom she mentioned, at decolonializing and de-imperializing and, and taking the oppressive systems out of steampunk, or at least writing their own steampunk that challenges those things. They are people who are marginalized in some way, and that comes through in their work. One of the other websites that she she doesn't mention, but I know that she knows about because uh, this is one of her editors, is uh, Beyond Victoriana, which is uh, run by Aileen the Peacemaker. And it's another one where if you're interested in this topic at all, if you're interested in steampunk or if you're interested in like going deeper into steampunk that is post-colonial or anti-colonial, then Beyond Victoriana is a great resource um, because even though I don't know if it's still being regularly updated, but it is still... You can go back through the archives and read so many articles and interviews and reviews of steampunk books and whatnot. It's such a great resource. And both Aileen and Jamie Go, who runs several goggles, like they just have have done continue to do a lot of great work around this. So and they show that it's possible, like even in their cosplay, you know, when when you see them at conventions, 
dressed up as their steampunk steam sona. I think that's what they call it, the steam sona. Nice. It is is all done with an eye toward you know, what they're trying to represent, what cultures they're trying to come from, and how they are not just using sort of Orientalist fantasies in order to build out their costumes. They're they're not going that route. And that's just, it's it's amazing just to, to watch them at conventions. They're really great. Cool. I don't have a lot to add because I don't know a lot about Steampunk. That's okay. <laughs> um, there's also this adventurousness, this idea of, we can do it. We can take over the world. That is part, I think, of the optimism of steampunk as a whole. And then when you translate it into the positiveness and optimism of people of color or marginalized people of any sort, I get a kick out of that. And then the other thing that I noticed was that there was a lot of attention paid to how resources were extracted and how they were put together. There's usually sort of a nerdiness to steampunk you know and a loving polishing of gears and and how they mesh and everything but this was positioned from the viewpoint of people who were doing the polishing yeah and and that also brings in something else which i a lot of the steampunk that i have read doesn't address but then i will admit that i haven't read a ton of steampunk because of some of the problems that nisi has already pointed out but just the the also lack of interrogation of class you know you say yes we have all these airships and we have these polished gears and we have this thing and that thing and there's a clockwork person over there and that's great who built that like other than the mad genius who who builds like the one clockwork person that you see at the center of the thing but but did he pound out all those gears or did he order them from a shop where they have people who are paid like two pence a day to pound out the gears who's polishing all that brass everywhere that's a lot of brass that poor person with the right. rag. <laughs> yeah, and then and, oiling it. and Right. Yeah. Right. So many things. So sometimes steampunk addresses class imbalance, but sometimes it does it in an allegorical way rather than a direct way. And science fiction and speculative fiction in general is pretty good at addressing things allegorically, but sometimes, especially in certain settings, you have to address things directly and not through allegory. And I feel like with class, you can do that with steampunk, but very often it isn't done. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. And I, do I want to say this? Um, I feel like it's it's another problem probably of white people starting a thing and not, uh, not thinking it through um, who, you know, they they never have had to think about who might polish brass things in Victorian era, you know, and and how uh, through the lens of what we know today and what we proclaim to be, what we proclaim to believe that might be a problem and something that does need to be addressed head on. Yeah, it's it's one of the things that I think when we talk about creativity, we. Uh, very often, especially when it comes to writers or, or any kind of artist, we're talking about creativity. You're talking about the inspiration that you feel, the great ideas that you have and how you get them on the page in such a way that your reader is just very entranced and engaged with it and whatnot. And sometimes people don't stop to think about the what's going on behind the scenes. Some science fiction writers do. Like there's mm-hmm. a whole... Skeen, skeen, a skeen of science fiction that's all about how 
hardcore realistic it can be. And so you then you have some science fiction novels that literally, and I am using the word correctly, literally are filled with pages of equations so that the reader can know that the author has thought about how this thing will work. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not for me. <laughs> I, right, like I'm not a big fan of the science fiction that has pages of equations, but some people really are. Like some people really dig that. No shade on that. Right. Um. So, so there, there are parts of the genre that are very concerned with, like, you know, let's get down to the nitty gritty and let's prove that this science can work, or let me prove that I've done my research. But um, sometimes you have novels, short stories, or whatever. Where the person, you can tell that the person hasn't really thought through all the different aspects. And sometimes you do have to think through all the different aspects of the world that you're building for this short story, for this novel or whatever, in order for your creativity not to sort of sit incorrectly with the reader or not even incorrectly, but sit in a way with the reader that you didn't intend. Mm -hmm. Like you don't want your readers to necessarily be thinking about whether or not it's realistic that the, the brass just polishes itself. You know, you want them to be concentrating on whatever story you're trying to tell. But it is things like that when they aren't thought through that then that's what trips up your readers. Um, one example that has nothing to do with steampunk but is fantasy is uh, the Harry, the world of Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling. Um, you know, lots of people talk about how Harry Potter fits into a specific subgenre of literature, like the English schoolboy novel. Mm -hmm. the, the boy, he goes to school and these are the things that he experiences. And then there's magic, but it's like English schoolboy novel, but with magic. But that's like, that is a self-contained genre, um, particularly in British literature because it's English schoolboy. So, so there's that. And so as she builds out the world of Harry Potter, there are a lot of things that she tells us that in the light of day don't make a lot of sense. But in the self-contained world that she had built around it, the world of actual just Hogwarts and and Diagon Alley and Hogsmeade and and Privet Drive and whatever, it 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 works well enough. Like the Ministry of Magic makes no sense. The educational <laughs> system makes no sense. Like how do these children ever get by in life? Like they don't right. even know spelling. Right. And math. Um, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and math. No, I like, know. They don't know math. So, but, but, you know, you can sort of go along with it. But the minute you start thinking about anything beyond that little bowl that she put everything in, stuff just doesn't make sense. And this is why Magic in North America, you know, the short stories that she <sighs> made that lead up to Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, where she was like, let me just explain to you how this all worked in America. Mm -hmm. It falls apart really quickly. And not even just because it was really racist mm -hmm. and and really terrible um, having to do with anything having to do with Native Americans, but just like it didn't make any sense. Right. Like just on a basic level, it didn't make any sense that anything would have happened that way. But she had to have it happen that way because otherwise it, her world didn't make sense. And oh, look. That's the real problem, is that outside of the small world of English schoolboy, the Harry Potter world does not make actual sense and it falls apart. And, you know, it, that that was a travesty for some people who really love that world. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, so on the, on the flip side of that, um, as we were talking, as you were talking about uh, kind of world building and not showing the nitty gritty of of day-to-day -day life, someone who does a really excellent job of that aspect is Fran Wilde. And I'm thinking specifically of Updraft, um, which is kind of, I don't know if it 
be steampunkish, but it's this young adult novel that takes place in the this this fantastical world. Um, but it does actually show kind of like the undesirable part of the city and actually like I don't know, like higher class people having to go down and clean it and um and and what happens um what happens when someone is kind of outside of the system. And that's an aspect of of Updraft. Uh, I haven't read the sequel yet, but I really want to uh that I really, really liked because it was some it is so unusual and so fantastical. Um and also Fran Wilde uh has a very multiracial cast. So I also really appreciated that. Yeah, and and from what I understand that was the at, at really at the forefront of her thinking when she yeah. was thinking about this world and and it comes through really well in that book so yeah it's awesome yeah so i also asked nisi about her process when she was thinking about how she was going to put steampunk into the belgian congo because as she mentioned it's not that's not a pretty time there are a lot of atrocities and if you don't know about the atrocities that were committed by leo the second in the belgian congo go on to Wikipedia or wherever and look it up. Just be warned. It's super atrocious. It's she's not playing like it it is a terrible time. But I think Mm -hmm. that that's one of the things that makes it makes this setting so rich, not because like, oh, the the suffering of people is so rich, but it it allows for you to to go in and, and and really like explore deep what was going on. And that is what Nisi did. Well, I really wanted to do it with the input of the people that were actually involved rather than the people that were continents away and planning all this stuff. So I wanted to be right there. One of the things I did was I very deliberately left Leopold II off the page. People mentioned him and referred to his actions, but he did not appear himself. He was not a point of view character and some people disliked the fact that his his doings were all second and third hand. But that was a deliberate choice on my part to focus on people who were actually involved with what was going on rather than people who were, you know, a, co- a continent away and planning and overseeing things that they didn't actually see. I've got to say, without having read it and being so excited to read it, I love that she made that choice, not even seeing how she executed. I love that she did not choose to center somebody who killed maybe 10 million people in her novel. Like, good. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and that's another thing is that who you choose to center in your narrative is also just as important as what's going on in your setting, what's going on with your themes um, and your writing. You know, by not putting Leo, Leo the second in the center of it, but instead putting in the center of it, the people who actually were there. Uh, she has 11 viewpoint characters in this book. Oh, some of the viewpoint characters are white people. Some of the viewpoint characters are people who are from uh, that part of Africa. Some of them are American. Like there's, there are all these people. She wanted to give them all, you know, distinct and, and real voices, but they are the voices of the people who are who are actually there who are in it and i appreciated that a lot about what was going on in the book but also you know as you said not centering someone as horrible as that and also because it's not really his story it's the story of the people that were affected by that and when you are making the choice to 
think about who's going to be the center of your narrative or what aspects of narrative you're going to be looking at. Even if you're, say, a person who's like, okay, I, I'm a white person. I want to have people of color in my story because I know that that, is, that reflects the real world and that representational fiction is really good and, and it makes my writing better. But sometimes you have to think about whether or not the way in which you are presenting those people of color is coming from the right gaze. And so, and, and I know for a fact, obviously that, that Nisi has thought about that a lot, but you know, it, it's clear in that particular choice why it's important to do so. Yeah. Uh, and I, I feel like more and more as people become more and more aware, we're seeing more and more controversies about representation in books. Like, Maybe it's just because I'm more involved in kind of book Twitter now than I used to be, but seeing uh, seeing authors kind of called to the mat for their choices and representation has been amazing and frightening at the same time. Like seeing how um, there's something recently about someone writing about chronic illness being a superpower and how awful that was for people to read who had chronic illness and poor representation of, uh, of people of color, um, in books and seeing authors bend over backwards to defend choices that clearly impacted people in ways that they hadn't anticipated, uh, has been, uh, instructive and terrifying. Maybe terrifying is, is a little <laughs> bit strong, but I mean, kind of, it's, well, yeah, it can be scary, yeah. especially when you are a person who is is a new author or you're hoping to be published or whatnot, seeing what can happen on the internets when folks start coming down on authors for, for their poor choices can be harrowing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably an episode that we need to do is how to respond to feedback and sensitivity readers. Oh yes. And you know, I, I even have a perfect person for that. Awesome. That'll be be great. great. So Nisi and I, we both teach classes on writing the other, because as I mentioned in the intro, Nisi wrote the book. She wrote the book, the textbook on writing the other with Cynthia Ward. And she and Cynthia actually wrote that book from um, a workshop that they developed together. Then it became the book. And then I helped Nisi and Cynthia bring their workshop online. And then Nisi and I started teaching the classes together. And one of the things that I have learned just from listening to her and being in these classes with her. I've done, we started doing this in 2015. I want to say I've done at least a dozen classes with Nisi at this point. And literally, again, I'm using that word correctly. Every time we do these classes, I learn something else from her or even from our students. That's one of the really great things about teaching is that sometimes you learn stuff from your students and that's amazing. And, and, but also just like reading this book and seeing her giving voice to all these different people, the just the amount of not only research, but like just being a writer is not exactly like being an actor because I've done both. But sometimes it does feel a little bit like the method when you're writing and you're writing characters who are very different from you. And you have to put yourself in this place and you have to put yourself in that person's place. And you have to figure out how this person talks and how that person would react Because on one level, they're not just people who are living in your head. You've given them a little bit of life and you have to go along with what they would do because of who they are. That's one of the things that we try to emphasize to our students is that 
your character is, say, they're a Black man, right? But they're not just a Black man. They're a Black man that comes from a particular sociocultural place. Um, They're a Black man who has a sexual orientation. They have a religion. They have a certain amount of education. They have a family structure. And the differences that you can have, like a Black man who is a Christian is very different from a Black man who is Jewish. Um, A Black man who's a Baptist can be very different from a Black man who's Pentecostal or even AME Zion. And that's just religion. You know, Mm -hmm. there are all these other axes. And so you, you have to know all these different things about your characters, just like you have to know all these different things about your world. And even if it never comes up, like even if that character never is in a situation where they're like, by the way, I'm a Christian. By the way, I was raised Baptist. (laughs) By the way, you know, my mother like won the lottery when I was 12 and our entire life changed. These things may never come up, but they are integral to who each individual is. And so therefore you have to know them in order to know how that might affect how your character makes choices, how your character views situations. And so to do that for 11 people, (laughs) uh, that it it feels like such a feat. Like I, I have a lot of people in the novel that I'm writing right now Two of them are viewpoint characters, just two. (laughs) I don't have to worry about the viewpoints of, you know, the majority of the other people. And it feels like such a daunting task. But see, this is why Nisi is brilliant, because she really pulled it off, I feel. Very cool. Yeah, writing that background, I feel like is, I mean, even if you don't sit down and write a character sheet, just knowing, like, what what choice would would my character make? Like, I don't know, if it's pertinent, I go to the coffee shop. Okay, well, what what coffee beverage would my character order? Like, you don't have to write it down. You don't have to be like, well, so-and-so loves caramel macchiatos, um, you know, and and they proclaimed it everywhere they went. Like, that doesn't need to be in your story. But like, <laughs> That would be amazing. <laughs> you said as a writing prompt. Whoever wants to do that, let's take it. But like, uh, you know, but like just knowing, oh, yeah, you know, sometimes so-and-so really likes to go to Starbucks, even though they know it's kind of not the greatest coffee. And they like to get a caramel macchiato, even though they know it's not like really an authentic macchiato because they really like that sugary, sugary hit of vanilla syrup and, and caramel sauce. I like caramel macchiatos. What can I say? <laughs> but, you yeah. know, but no, I'm I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> but but knowing that stuff, I mean, in that's probably maybe an overblown example, but knowing that kind of background stuff, knowing your character like they're a person is um, important for, for helping them feel authentic, I think. Yeah, you, because I really feel like you can tell when an author doesn't know enough about their character, when they're just sort of like a collection of not even just stereotypes, but a collection of very surface observations about what certain types of people are like moving forward in a plot of someone's design. Totally. I feel like I can tell when that's going on and when there's an actual person there on the page. Well, I feel like we all, maybe not all can, but a lot of us can. Like sometimes we'll be watching TV and we'll think that doesn't seem like something that person would do. What, what is happening? That, that, that doesn't fit with my mental image of, of what that person is. Yeah. See, every time Stephen Moffat got to write an episode of Doctor Who before he became the showrunner. <laughs> Ding, we can't I need go a bell. Long. Ding. I mean, basic right. It's like you can't go along with me 
before I'm dissing Stephen Moffat. Oh, no. So get used to it, <laughs> listeners. Oh, my gosh. I had been drawn to uh, several of the bases of the characters. Um, I have always loved E. Nesbitt. Um, I was very, very interested in H.G. Wells and in Colette. I wanted to be Colette when I grew up and that kind of stuff. So um, they were all more or less active in this particular period that I associate with steampunk, the Victorian and particularly the late Victorian. And that was also the period that Leopold's experiment, his crooked scam in the Congo was taking place. So it was the period. Yeah, it's, and it just goes back to what I was saying earlier is that there's so much that you can do in this particular time period, if you want to stick to the, you know, steampunk begins, you know, this year and it, and it goes forward from there. There's a lot that you can do with that that isn't, you know, with, within those constraints. And I think that that, I feel like that is what I wish for all of speculative fiction, really. But steampunk in particular, because there there are some issues where you get mired in that. But just thinking outside of where you normally have to go, who who else can you talk about? What other places can you go? Um, and Nisi mentioned this as well when she was talking about what she wanted to see in steampunk that she wasn't seeing. I would really like to see more steampunk that takes place elsewhere on the planet. I would really like to see more steampunk set in the the many, many, many places around the world that are outside of or were outside of the British Empire, the U.S. Uh, Empire, and, you know, underwater, at the poles, all of these these places that uh, stretch our definition of habitability, those, those would be great set- settings for any kind of steampunk. She said underwater, and I was like, steampunk mermaids! Right? <laughs> yes, I, I want all of that. And actually, so I... I'd, Aline mentioned this, I think, in in our last podcast, but I am in the middle of writing a steampunk novel that's set in ancient Egypt. And one of the reasons why I even thought that I could do this is because of Nisi. It's because she was like, I'm setting my steampunk in the Belgian Congo, and anybody can put their steampunk anywhere because it's not about the Victorian era. It's not about the British Empire. It's about all these other things. So it's like Nisi and... Beyond Victoriana and Silver Goggles and Steam Powered and all of those things that, that Nisi was talking about, like those gave me the ability to think outside of the sort of narrow confines and decide what I wanted to do was to to set my steampunk in ancient Egypt because I have this huge I've been researching ancient Egypt for a while. <laughs> and and there have there were going to be novels set in ancient Egypt, but now they're steampunk novels and they're actually so much better. <laughs> For for being steampunk. But but also, okay, so here's the other thing about researching ancient Egypt. And if any of you have any have ever done it, uh you will have come across this. People love to be like aliens, mm-hmm. Atlantis, mm-hmm. aliens built the pyramids. You're like, ah. so I try to stay away from certain things. But one day I was flipping channels and I came across and yes, I do still flip the channels because I'm bored. I came across an episode of Ancient Aliens, which I usually try not to watch, but they were talking about 
pyramids in different parts of the world, and I think specifically China. And they were going through like how there were some there were some pyramid in China where there are like these pipes, these metal pipes that sort of like come up out of the earth into this pyramid, and they're like, could it be the remnants of an alien spacecraft? Oh, and I'm like, could it be steampunk? Because that would that was where my brain went, and I I would love that. I would love for somebody to actually go because I am. I don't trust ancient aliens, obviously, so I have no idea if there are actually any metal pipes under this pyramid, whatever they were talking about. But I would love it if somebody who did know were to go and to, like, you know, research, like, what the pipes look like or whatever and come up with, like, an amazing steampunk story set in whatever ancient time in China that this structure was built. Like, what were they doing with it? What were they trying to do with those metal pipes? Perhaps they were, like, using steam power to generate, you know, whatever so that they could do whatever. But, of course, like, I don't want it to be aliens. I want it to be ancient Chinese people doing some advanced technological stuff. That's what I want. Yes, please. I think that that actually sounds great. Yeah, I do too. I am. Um, I'm going to plug Tempest again, really fast, um, and diverge from our our, our Nisi topic uh, because this novel is going to be awesome. Um, I am super excited for it. You should support her on Patreon so that you can read that. Links to that will be in our show notes. Um, well, you don't get to read the novel, but you get to read like character sheets and that kind of thing, and that's really great. Um, yeah, so go read it. It combines some of my favorite things, which is like taking uh, uh, mythology and ancient history and kind of turning it on on its ear a little bit. So you'd think I'd like steampunk more than I tend to, uh, but I am super excited. So I'm I'm throwing that in there. Some Tempest promotion. Go go support her Aww. on Patreon. You're the best. <laughs> I really you're awesome. Like I can't help it. I'm sorry. What she's not saying is that. Every time I post something, I'm just like, is this okay, guys? I don't know. And then I run and hide in the corner. <laughs> it's great. Hide. <laughs> but, but yeah, so I, and one of the reasons why I started doing that on the Patreon is because I really did feel like what, I want there to be more of this. Like I want, because whenever I would tell people like, yes, I'm writing a steampunk novel set in Egypt. People were like, what? That's amazing. Mm-hmm. What? I want, ah, I want that. And I'm like, I want it too. But I also want you know, other people to be doing steampunk in the ancient past because, you know, aliens aside, Atlantis aside, no, no, no. The Egyptians built the pyramids. We don't even know how they did that. There are a lot of Egyptologists out there who claim to have pretended to have figured it out, but they're wrong. We don't know how they did that. We don't know how the ancient Egyptians dug tunnels underneath the Giza Plateau, some of which go down a thousand feet with like right corners and smooth sides with copper chisels, which, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, and and we don't know, like the, the those Ramses statues, like the ones that you're like so used to seeing where like the serene face of Ramses, the perfection and the symmetry of those statues is such that People are still like, how did they do this again? Like, people who have really studied these things, they don't know. Whatever was going on, and I don't believe that it was aliens, the ancient Egyptians were some advanced people, and and we still don't understand how it is they did all the stuff mm-hmm. they did. And and I think that that's actually true for a lot of ancient people. How did they get the stones to Stonehenge? How did they build those pyramids that we see in many different places across the world? Like, they're not the same exact type of pyramids as we see as the ones in Egypt, but they are giant, giant, giant things that are made with giant, giant, giant stones. How did they do that? 
I think that the ancient world is so rife for the kind of imaginative stuff that acknowledges that ancient peoples who weren't white were advanced and intelligent and amazing. And so that's that's what I get out of that. But yeah, I would love it. It's steampunk under the sea, steampunk yep. in Antarctica. Like, just give me steampunk everywhere at every time in the past, and I'm here for it. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the southwest U.S., so of course my brain goes to mermaids because, I mean, what woman doesn't want to be a mermaid? I don't know. A lot of us, I think. But, like, I, I, like, I went to mermaids, but there are also— I, I grew up in the Southwest U.S. I still live in the Southwestern U.S. Um, and we're talking about like the Aztec people, um, the Anasazi people. We're talking about they had highway systems. They had road systems connecting to hubs like in the Southwestern U.S. So we think about uh, people come here and they think, oh, it was so barren and, and so, you know, blah and whatever. And it's like, no. There were people with rich technologies here. We don't we don't know how they did what they did. There's something about like I believe uh, I want to say it was like the Incas. Like there were things they did with connecting buildings together, kind of um, with metal, and we don't know how they did it. Like it, it's amazing. People had this amazing technology that we cannot figure out right now, um, and that is yeah. Why don't we see more steampunk with all of this? Why does it have to be Victorian Britain? Because of reasons. Because it doesn't have to. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I feel like that that's really, if we're going to talk about like where creativity comes from, it's the ability to look at stuff like that and really see amazing story possibilities. And there are people who do, like Nisi did. Mm -hmm. there, and there are tons of people, who, you know, doing steampunk who do that, who like look into what's already going on and they reach past that. They like push aside that curtain. They're like, oh, look at this other thing that's going deep in here. And I feel like that's really what makes for the difference between like a good writer and a great writer is somebody who's willing to look past what, not even just what everybody else is doing, but just like the paradigms, the the reigning narrative about that thing and be like, hmm, but over here is something else and better and different and, and new and shiny and worth exploring, unexplored. So, yeah. Yeah. So Everfair was published last year. You can buy it in bookstores today. Go out and buy it. Cheer her on uh, for the Nebula Award and whatever other awards there are to come. And Nisi also is one of those people who, like me, believes in writing a lot of short stories in the world that you've already created. Because once you've done the work of building a world... You don't want it to just be for that one thing. You got to milk that stuff <laughs> for as much as you possibly can. I'm a big believer in this. And so um, she has a story that takes place after Everfair coming out in an upcoming anthology called Clockwork Cairo, which is coming out on May 28th. So uh, let her talk to you about that a little. In Clockwork Cairo, I have a story called Sun River that takes place less than a year after Everfair ends. And it includes at least three characters that were prominent in Everfair. And if you purchase Clockwork Cairo, you can also read a story that's set in my steampunk world. Uh, because again, I, I got this from DC. I wrote a short story set in the world of my novel because the world was already built. I just needed to like write some people doing some stuff in there. And actually my story takes place about a hundred years before the start of the novel. So 
there are lots of reasons for you to pick up Clockwork Cairo. Very exciting. Uh, so I want to end by thanking Nisi again, um, not only for giving me this interview, for, but just for being the inspirational person that she is. I work with Nisi and talk to her pretty much every day, but I feel like I don't spend enough time telling her how wonderful mm-hmm. she is and how much she inspires me. And And I was really glad to be able to talk to her about this subject because... Yeah, everything, every time I talk to her, I'm inspired by something and everything she says inspires me to like new heights of creativity. And so that's why I wanted to make sure that all of you got a chance to hear from her as well. Um, so if you're interested in Nisi's novel, you can go to Nisi Shawl, that's N-I-S-I-S-H-A-W-L dot com, where you can see links to all of her books and projects. And you can also, if you are interested in learning how to write the other from Nisi or me, you can go to writingtheother.com where you can find all the classes that we do. Um, We have a lot of them coming up that are about a lot of things we talked about on this podcast, actually. So, yeah, so we have, we don't have a class that is open for registration right this second, I don't believe, but there will be classes that are coming up in the weeks and months ahead. And as always, all of this will be in the show notes. So if you're driving, all you need to do is get to your destination and click or tap on the link and you'll get there. That's right. That's why show notes are magical. They are. Friendships and show notes are magic. (laughs) Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you, Aline. Thank you, Tempest. I um, I was really excited to hear everything Nisi had to say. Um, and I'm actually more interested in steampunk now than I was <laughs> a couple of hours ago. <laughs> amazing. She has that effect on people. Yeah, she sounds amazing. I hope to meet her someday. Well, everybody, I think that's it for this week. So uh, if you would do us the favor of uh, telling people about our show, recommending it in your podcast player of choice, leaving a review on iTunes, whatever that happens to be, we would greatly appreciate it. And we will see you back here in a couple of weeks. As always, I have been Aline Sims and joined by Kate Tempest Bradford. Yay. Yay. <laughs>